thk. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Chris Oliver, along with Mike Weeks. Brian Curtis will be back next week. Google shares tumble as its cost per click rate weakens. China's GDP growth comes in a little stronger than expected, and Starbucks shifts its European headquarters to the UK. In our featured segments this morning, we'll talk about the economic outlook for China and Japan with Klaus Bader. He's chief Asia Pacific economist at Societe Generale. We'll also talk, take a look at the difficult choices facing China's top economic planners. Joining us for that discussion is Gillam Tolak, founder of GMT Research, and Danny Hicks, editor of Sport Direct at AFP, will be speaking to us trackside in Shanghai to help preview this weekend's Formula One Grand Prix. All of that ahead, but first, quick look at the markets, and it's a mixed start to share trading here in Asia. That after U.S. stocks advanced for a third straight session on remarks from Fed Chair Janet Yellen reaffirming the central bank's commitment to keeping interest rates low. Data showing Chinese economic growth exceeded expectations, and a rise in U.S. industrial production for a second straight month also improved sentiment. Yahoo was the S&P 500's biggest gainer after announcing better-than-expected results. It got a big boost. From revenue growth at China e-commerce firm Alibaba, in which Yahoo holds a 24% stake. Here's Todd Horowitz with Adam Mesh Trading Group on the market's advance. It's got a lot to do with earnings. I mean, they are better than expected, but you know, how could they not be when they've reduced the bar so low that it's hard not to beat earnings? And I think the bigger issue and the bigger driver of the market is the lack of opportunities of where to invest your money. If you want to gain any yield, you are forced into the equity market, which keeps us up. The Dow rose 162 points to 16,424. The S&P 500 also up 1% to 1862, while the Nasdaq climbed 1.3% to close at 4,086. In this part of the world, shares in Australia and Seoul slightly higher at the moment, but the Nikkei is down more than a tenth of a percent at 14,395. That's probably due to the dollar weakening against other currencies. It's currently trading at just under a 102.2 yen. Google's shares fell almost six percent in after-hours trading in New York after its first-quarter revenue fell short of market expectations. The number of paid clicks by consumers on Google's ads increased by 26 percent in the first quarter, but the average cost per click fell nine percent as mobile advertising made ever greater inroads on traditional online ads. Google's net profit for the March quarter rose to 3.45 billion U.S. dollars. That's up from 3.35 billion a year earlier. First quarter profit at American Express beat market forecasts as customers spent more in a recovering U.S. economy and it kept expenses in check. Net income at the world's biggest credit card issuer rose 12 percent to just over 1.4 billion U.S. dollars. But it was a different story at Bank of America, which posted a first quarter loss of over 500 million dollars as it set aside an extra six billion to cover litigation expenses. That was far higher than the legal settlements that the second biggest U.S. bank has announced. Recently, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley will announce their first quarter results later today. China's GDP growth slowed to 7.4 percent in the first three months of the year. That's down from 7.7 percent in the final quarter of 2013, and the slowest expansion in 18 months. 
but it was still slightly above market expectations. A spokesman for the National Bureau of Statistics, Sheng Laiyun, said medium to high growth would would be maintained in the near and long term. But speaking through an interpreter, he admitted that China faces downward pressure on its economic growth. We know that to make structural adjustments needs us to pay a heavy price.、Um, as a lot of people have said, we are now in a period of overcoming great difficulties and challenges. And just imagine if you can drive a car. Just imagine you are driving uphill. If you slow down the speed of your car a little bit, it would be easier to drive the car uphill more steadily. Beijing has long admitted that its old economic model, based on investment and export, has run out of steam, and is now trying to encourage domestic consumption. But this rebalancing process has hit some mainland industries hard. The BBC's Martin Patience has this look at China's steel industry. It's the industry that's fired China's searing growth. Steel has transformed its cities and laid the foundations of the world's second-largest economy. But now the industry is a symbol of China's economic weakness. Nowhere is that clearer than in Hebei Province. It produces more steel in a year than the U.S. But oversupply, as well as concerns about pollution, mean unprofitable steel mills are being forced to close. We visited one of the dozens of plants that have stopped production. It's incredibly eerie here, but when we talk about economic restructuring in China, this is what it looks like. It means that the old industries, such as steel, will be left to rust. Whilst investment goes elsewhere, but it's a very painful process. As the workers at this plant have already found out, it means that tens of thousands of people will lose their jobs. Outside the gates, labourers can wait for a whole day and get no work. This man says a couple of years ago he can make $700 a month. Now he's lucky if he makes half that. If the steel mills don't produce, we don't get hired. He says there are hundreds of people like me. China's leaders say major economic reforms are required to create new, better-paying jobs. But many in the country's industrial heartlands fear they'll be thrown on the scrap heap. Starbucks says it will move its European headquarters to London from the Netherlands this year and pay more tax in the UK as a result. The announcement comes at a time when the world's largest coffee chain is under ever,、uh, is under increasing scrutiny. The BBC's Theo Leggett reports. For Starbucks, Britain and London in particular is a land of opportunity. It's the coffee chain's fastest-growing market in Europe, fueled by rising demand for foamy lattes and frappuccinos. But while the firm's products may be popular in Britain, its business practices have come under fire. Although it racks up sales worth hundreds of millions of dollars a year, it also reports substantial losses, meaning it rarely pays any corporation tax. In 2012, British MPs accused the firm of deliberately channeling its British revenues into other parts of the Starbucks Group in order to avoid paying tax. You've run the business for 15 years and you're losing, and you're carrying on investing it. Just doesn't ring true. Since then, Starbucks has voluntarily agreed to pay the UK authorities $35 million over two years, and now it says its decision to move headquarters will mean it pays even more. 
That's because licensing payments from Starbucks subsidiaries across Europe will be booked in London rather than Amsterdam. So any profits will be taxable in the UK. Our first guest this morning is Klaus Botter. Klaus is the Chief Asia Pacific Economist at Societe Generale. Good morning, Klaus. Good morning. So we had a big data batch uh, released in China yesterday. What do you make of the numbers? Um, I actually don't find them very encouraging at all, um, despite the somewhat better headline number. Um, I think when you look at the details, um, it's a pretty significant slowdown. I mean, without wanting to get too technical, but, you know, the Chinese GDP data are incredibly smooth. Um, when you go below the surface, um, you actually find that uh, nominal GDP growth slowed much more sharply and that a lot of the slowdown was simply ascribed to the GDP deflator, which fell by 1.4 percentage points, which is a much bigger slowdown that you have either in CPI or in PPI. And the result of this is that the real growth rate is higher. Um, the, um, the high frequency data, too, were not particularly favorable. Um, the industrial production in March um, grew just 8.8%. Um, that was a slowdown mm-hmm. from the previous two months in you know, January, February data are always published together. That was 8.6%, sorry, slight acceleration, but there was a very big base effect, and um, in that sense, the number is pretty underwhelming. And um, you have very, very weak data that relating to the housing market, um, with sales um, down very sharply and um, and also construction down very sharply. Um, the only positive thing that I can see is that uh, retail sales are holding up, so you are at least getting a little bit of that shift towards private consumption, which is, of course, part of the medium-term strategy. Um, but um, no, we uh, did not, despite the, compared to our forecast, two-tenths upside surprise on the year-on-year growth rate. We stick to 7.1% growth for this year, um, down from 77 last year, meaning that we actually see some more weakness um, in the near term. Um, And even though the authorities are trying to stimulate the economy a little bit, um, it's doubtful that that's going to have any impact before the second half of the year. So I think... I think there is still a major slowdown. Now, not all of that slowdown is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the slowdown is actually rather good. Um, for instance, um, some of it is part of the uh, drive to reduce pollution, which I think is a huge problem in China, which is making people sick. Just a note there on the retail sales, I have it up 12.2% growth in March, uh, and that compares to 11.8% in the first two months of the year. But if you factor in inflation, it's really almost no growth at all. I'm worried about that kind of flatlining. Don't you see that as a problem? Well, you, no, no, it's not no growth at all. It's no acceleration in growth. Um, there's definitely growth. I mean, inflation in China is barely over 2%, so uh, retail sales are actually growing in real terms. But you're right. They didn't accelerate from the first two months of the year. So given that things are flat to slowing, what do you expect? Will there be new stimulus? Well, I think there'll be some stimulus, but uh, not a great deal. Um, the, it, there probably is going to be some monetary stimulus. Um, already overnight, we had news that for some banks at the county level, right. there'll be a reduction in the reserve requirements. So I think there's some scope for monetary policy to be a little bit stimulative, but rate, rate cuts, pretty unlikely. See, whereas on the fiscal side... Um, there is some scope. After all, the railway um, investment budget this year is up a little bit from the previous year. But 
the growth rates are slowing compared to previous years. And um, the point about China is that uh, the the limits of debt finance growth are slowly being reached. Now, I mean, I think there's some uh, some exaggerated concerns about the level of indebtedness in China. Um, overall indebtedness is about 200 percent of GDP. Um, in most developed economies, that's significantly higher. That's 300. So I don't think that China is at a point where um, it's going to be crushed by its debt load. But at the same time, the growth rate of debt has been very high. Um, and that very clearly limits the ability to stimulate the economy through um, through fiscal policy. Um, so, yeah, some what, what we, how we describe it is the Chinese authorities are fine-tuning growth. But a huge stimulus package? No, I don't think so. And I think you can see in the pronouncements from the policymakers that their emphasis is shifting. Um, it's turning more to the quality of growth. It's turning more to the anti-pollution drive, which has now been elevated above the, um, the just the pure, pure growth numbers. So, no, I don't think that we're going to have a big stimulus package. Just turning to the housing story there, I think that's a real the drag on the fixed asset investment number, which was quite uh, downbeat. Do you see the housing investment slowing down and the purchases of land slowing down? Yes, um, but I have to say that uh, the Chinese housing market, um, to me, is a bit of a book with seven seals. Um, you, it's clearly a very divi- divided market. Um, you see definite strength in the main cities, but um, the press is full, and not just the international press, all the Chinese press, is full of stories about uh, these ghost cities and about um, oversupply in certain markets. Um, the, the latest numbers were really, yeah, pretty catastrophically weak. Property sales were down 7.5% year on year, and uh, new starts were down 21.9%. So, yeah, I think we're seeing a very significant slowdown here. Um, The question is, is there going to be a huge uh, property crash, and is that going to have similar consequences for the financial sector as it did uh, in the U.S.? And the general view is that, no, that's probably not going to be the case. Um, Chinese uh, property owners have much, much higher equity than uh, than you typically find uh, in the West. But um, I think it's going to be a very, very divided market where you're going to have continued strength in the tier one cities, but potentially a lot of weakness in uh, in the lower lower tier cities. Just switching for a moment to Japan, we'll come back to China in, in a second. But uh, in spite of uh, big gains in the Nikkei on Tuesday, things have been very tough there of late. Uh, the currency has been strong; it's been one of the, the strongest of the major eight, uh, and that's helped send the Nikkei average down sharply this year. You know, in a word, and I want to put this to you: Is Abenomics working? Yes, I well. I think it certainly has been working. Um, when you look over economic developments 2013, I think you can clearly see that it's been working. Inflation is um, now running at uh, just over 1%, and it's going to make a huge leap once uh, the consumption tax uh, hike is uh, in these numbers. Um, the labor market has picked up very significantly, and I'm not just talking about unemployment rate, but uh, I'm more importantly talking about the employment to population rate, um, which has picked up from a like, 50-year down trend. Um, uh, housing, house prices are definitely rising. Um, housing starts have been up, etc., etc. Uh, you can, can go, go through a whole gamut. Um, but 
the more recently, the economy has clearly lost some momentum, and uh, that's concerning. And I think that uh, one thing that is also worrisome is that um, the population appears to be losing some faith in Abenomics. Uh, consumer sentiment has been declining for several months now, after a big surge um, when uh, the new administration came in. Um, and it, I think a lot has to do with the so-called third arrow, um, with the structural reforms that are going to boost medium and long-term growth in, in Japan. Now, we're going to see um, how badly the economy is hit by the consumption tax increase. Our view, in fact, is that the economy is not going to hit the buffers. Yeah, sure. First quarter growth is going to be very strong, and then second quarter growth is going to be negative. That I think everybody's pretty much in agreement about that. But we see the economy coming back in the third quarter, because the point is that um, the tax revenue from the increase in VAT in the consumption tax is more than offset, more than compensated by yet another fiscal stimulus package which the Abe administration implemented. So the fiscal tightening in 2014 in Japan is actually, if at all, it's microscopic. So I don't think that the economy is suddenly going to slide into a deep hole. But the the big challenges um, of the reform of the economy, by which I mean increasing the participation rate in particular by um, better integrating females and in particular highly educated females into the labor force where participation rate in Japan is shockingly low, um, hopefully doing something about immigration um, and allowing a greater degree of immigration so as to count, offset or counteract some of the, dem- the deeply negative demographics, opening up the very, in part, very inefficient and highly protected sectors in the Japanese economy. Those are all big challenges, and um, those are really only being tackled now. Mm. There's plenty of, it, of legislation that's going to go through the diet, but um, we'll see how how vigorous the implementation is. So I think uh, 2014 is going to be a make-or-break year for Abenomics, and that's arguably a make-or-break year for the Japanese economy. Uh, Klaus, can you just hang on with us for a moment? I just want to bring in our next guest. Uh, that's uh, Gillam Tollock, the founder of GMT Research. Uh, in a recent note, uh, he argues the point that China's top policymakers need to take urgent action to head off damage to the economy that's brewing because of excessive credit growth. Ease back on credit now, and we'll deal with short-term pain, which is sensible. And he says, luckily, China's in a good financial position to tackle this problem. So joining me now in the program is Gillam Tollick. Good, good morning, Gillam. Good morning. Uh, so your note's a little bit uh, that China's also at the turning point here. Is it, is it on the brink? Um, well, it's really, it's, it's, it's up to them, um, you know, what they want to do going forward. If, if, if companies and economic actors were left to do uh, their own or make their own decisions, I think the corporate sector in particular would deleverage quite aggressively, and they would do that by cutting capex. And that's because if you look at China's corporate sector today, it's far more highly leveraged than even Thailand on the eve of the Asian financial crisis. Many of the comparisons that we've been talking about in the program so far are with the U.S. and developed economies. We shouldn't be comparing an undeveloped or developing economy such as China to the U.S. because the debt dynamics are very different. We should be comparing it with the developing economies in Southeast Asia in the mid-1990s because it's identical. For example... If you look at the housing crisis in Southeast Asia in the mid-1990s, the banks didn't even disclose the extent of mortgages on their balance sheets because it was immaterial. There was a huge amount of uh, sort of uh, perceived equity ownership, and yet the property market was wiped out for the better part of a decade because of the excess supplies um, in the build-up to the crisis. 
So we're, we're, there is some comparison here between Thailand and uh, 1997, but you, argue, you argue as well that China is in a much better financial position to sort of get on the case now, I guess. Yeah, um, well, c- certainly um, uh, the problem with Thailand was the, the corporate sector had a very unstable capital structure. They had almost every single company had gone out um, and taken uh, U.S. dollar financing. So I think half the loan stock of listed companies was actually uh, foreign debt, and when the BART devalued, it ruined their balance sheets. That's not the case in, in, in uh, uh, China today. It's a lot more stable capital structure. But the, the government is actually far more highly leveraged in China than the government was in Thailand. So given that there's a clampdown on grey market financing at the moment that we're, that we're seeing this go on, What's, what's going to come of that? Is that going to run and we're going to have a bit of a credit kind of crisis later this summer? Well, I mean, you know, if we look at all the metrics we've looked at, China is, is uh, you know, it, it's showing all the hallmarks of your typical Asian corporate bubble. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, if they start clamping down on the grey market, I mean, the only way to sustain bubbles is by injecting ever greater quantities of credit into it. And if they clamp down on the grey market, they risk actually shrinking the amount of credit going into the economy. And then you do actually have uh, a deflation of the bubble, bubble which is what you're seeing in, in things like the property sector at the moment. And it will spread, you know, into the stock market, etc. You're beginning to see some very strange pricing action in the Chinese economy, which suggests there are problems. And where exactly is that pricing action coming from? I mean, is it housing in third-tier cities? Or? Well, obviously, you know, if, they, if, you, if you start to, to clamp down on the credit, um, the, uh, the, the parts of the economy that uh, show the pricing action are, you know, where that credit has gone into. So, obviously, it's in the, the, housing, uh, the housing market to, to a large degree. Yes, second and third cities, second and third-tier cities, but also the main cities as well. I mean, they're just, there are ghost cities absolutely everywhere. And, you know, we've done a number of reports on this in the past. We've gone to visit them, you know, even Shanghai, Beijing, uh, you name it. I just want to invite Klaus into the discussion here. Can authorities actually begin to manage the situation with a benign outcome? Hmm. Well, it's a, it's a huge challenge. Um, yeah, I think it's probably possible. You know, the Chinese um, authorities still have a very high degree of control over the economy and um, in particular over the financial sector. Um, they have close to $4 trillion in foreign exchange reserves, so I think it's possible. But, um, you know, it depends a little bit how you define um, managing the slowdown. Um, I don't think that uh, there's a possibility that we return to the 10% growth rates. Um, the Chinese economic growth is on a long-term structural slowdown, and um, it's not going to be that long before we're going to see uh, six handles on GDP growth. And um, I think when you look out five or six years, you're probably going to see five handles on uh, GDP growth. But that's kind of normal. Um, But the growth model um, has definitely reached pretty much at sell-by date. Um, The share of investment in the Chinese economy is totally excessive, and it has to come down. And uh, it's not easy to manage that. Um, And that's the the main challenge. Um, At the same time, I think um, your other guests already said there's uh, uh, kind of bubbles in the corporate sector. There's enormous amount of of oversupply um, and underutilization of uh, capacity, and so that has to be shut down. And uh, that means losses. So um, I think it's 
huge challenge mm-hmm. to uh, to manage this. But uh, you know, do I think that uh, a hard landing is the most likely scenario? No, I definitely don't. All um, right, I guys, we're gonna we're gonna have to just sort of uh, wind it down there. Thank you very much. That's uh, Klaus Bader, Chief Asia Pacific Economist at Societe Generale, and Gillam Tolik, founder of GMT Research. Thank you both. The uh, Easter holiday weekend coming up. We're going to be joined now by Danny Hicks today rather than Friday, and he's at the Shanghai Grand Prix this weekend. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Mike. From uh, I'd like to say sunny Shanghai, but it's uh, <laughs> it's not. It's rather murky and cool, and a bit uh, and a bit miserable looking at the moment. But uh, let's hope it gets better over the weekend. Okay, I guess the big talking point this weekend is whether Mercedes can make it four out of four. Absolutely, yeah. They've won every Grand Prix so far. This is the fourth of the season. Uh, Nico Rosberg uh, won the, the, the opener in Australia, and, and Lewis Hamilton's led a 1-2 for Mercedes in the, in the two races since in Malaysia and Bahrain. So it's it's all dominant for Mercedes at the moment. It's a question of whether the uh, other teams who are frantically trying to play catch-up can get anywhere near them. What's happened this year to Red Bull in particular? Well, it seems, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, a raft of technical changes this year, um, the, the most major of which, of course, is the engines, which have, uh, have become these V6 uh, hybrid kind of units, uh, turbo-powered, but also got some electrical components, you know, sort of hybrid, almost, uh, you know, they're not exactly a Toyota Prius, but uh, they're, they're, they're certainly uh, very, very different to in the past. And it just seems that Mercedes uh, have the power unit anyway that uh, is driving the best teams at the moment. Uh, Force India, who are doing very well and second in the Constructors' Championship, also use Mercedes. Engine, so uh, Mercedes seem to have adapted to the the rule changes best so far. But but you can bet your life, you know, that, that Red Bull and Ferrari and those sort of guys are, will catch up at some point in the seasons and will get it right. So I think it's a question of you know Mercedes really need to kind of hammer home their advantage while they can before the other teams uh, get get back on their uh, exhaust pipes. And both Red Bull and Ferrari have, have suffered blows this week, haven't they? They have, yeah. Uh, Red Bull were hoping they they, they had an appeal against uh, Daniel Ricciardo, their their driver, came second uh, in the race in Melbourne in the opener, but was uh, disqualified, subsequently disqualified and stripped of the 18 points that uh, he would have gained for uh, without getting too technical there's rules on how much fuel and how quickly the engines can consume it and his car was deemed to have uh, exceeded the fuel flow limits and so he was disqualified. They appealed against that this week but the FAA dismissed the appeal so uh, they're kind of back to square one on that one but uh, Ricardo's using it as, uh, as kind of a, to get himself pumped up for this week he says he's really raring to go and it's fired him up and uh, Red Bull will be smarting from that but uh, they'll, they'll probably find something a little bit extra this weekend but whether it's good enough to catch the Mercedes we'll see and Ferrari were rocked this week because their uh, long time team principal Stefano Domenicali just quit after what's been a very very difficult start of the season for them and there's a new guy in charge Marco Mattiacci I'm hoping to catch up with him later today and see what he's got to say about things but uh, uh, some sort of worrying words from their, their their chief engineer this week saying that they're, they're at the moment they're just striving to be the best of the, the rest of the teams after Mercedes they're not even thinking about winning yet they're just trying to come second Okay, well, an exciting weekend prospect of racing ahead. Thanks for joining us, Danny. It is, yeah. (laughs) Can I just say, it could be wet this weekend, which could throw in all sorts of new things, so there could be some surprises. Okay, unfortunately we're out of time, but thanks for joining us. Danny Hicks there in Shanghai. Briefly in markets as we sign off, uh, a little bit mixed this morning. The Nikkei is uh, up slightly, six points. 
at 14,411. Australia is higher as well, up four tenths of a point, while Seoul is uh, just trending a little bit higher as well. The dollar is at 102.08 yen, the euro at 1.38 US dollars. Now, A search and rescue operation for almost 300 people missing after a passenger ferry sank off the coast of South Korea has entered its second day. More than 170 passengers have been rescued, but an emergency official was quoted as saying it was unlikely that any more passengers would be found alive. Here's our correspondent in Seoul, Frank Smith. The prospects are not good. One rescuer said anyone trapped inside is unlikely to have survived, and that that was last night. If they haven't died of hypothermia for being in the cold water, uh, there would be absence of of oxygen inside the ship, which is now uh, completely submerged. So the likelihood of survivors of those 290 people missing is somewhat unlikely. A father of one of the schoolchildren trapped inside the ship has told Reuters news agency that his son sent him a text message this morning to say there are people still alive inside the capsized ferry. Two journalists face court in Thailand today accused of defaming the, Australi- the Thai Navy. Australian Alan Morrison is the editor of the independent news website Phuket One and says the alleged defamation comes from a poor translation of a story of Thai military links to human trafficking of Burmese Rohingya asylum seekers. His Thai colleague Chutima Siddhasatian questioned why the Thai Navy was targeting Phuket One. In Thailand, they have uh, at least four outlets that have been uh, according on the story on that day as well. And in the past, we not have any uh, bad history together with the loyal Thai Navy at all. The Indian Prime Ministerial candidate Narendra Modi has said he's committed to a policy of no first use of nuclear weapons. Mr Modi, who represents the main opposition BJP, said he would stay true to the 